Welcome to the Impact Leadership Podcast brought to you by Cartavera, the leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. This is episode 29, and our special guest is Dr. Amelia Case. The title is Be a Zookeeper, Taming the Mental Beasts that Drive Your Anxiety. Dr. Case is a chiropractor, coach, integrative health expert, and a health futurist. I love that, a health futurist. And she's going to be talking today about her method for working with people with trauma and what she calls high-functioning anxiety. Have you ever felt overwhelmed by stress and self-doubt? Have you ever felt like you were the only one? Are you looking for new strategies to help you reduce stress and differently manage your anxiety? Well, Dr. Case is here with us today to answer that and so many other questions. And most important, she's going to give you insights and strategies to help you better understand your anxiety. And here's the key, the sources of that anxiety in order to reduce it and find your solutions. Podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. We're excited to have Dr. Amelia Case with us here today. And Dr. Amelia Case has been both one of my clients, but also we've gotten to know each other over the years. And she has started out in the chiropractic field, but then started weaving into more of the mental health side as well. And so she has a really interesting story about how that has emerged and how she developed as a leader. Amelia, it's great to have you here. Thanks for being on the podcast with us. And we look forward to hearing a little bit more of your story. Tell us a little bit about how you got started and where you are now. Thanks, Craig, for inviting me. And Jeff, it's nice to meet you. So I started my clinic business as a chiropractic doctor in 1990. And I was in it for a loan. And I thought, you know, that's what you do. You hang up your sign. And I was you know, I, I've had a coach, in fact, who started me. He said, you have to meet 3,500 people before you open. This oh. was in the days of, you know, like walking what? down the street saying, hi, I'm Dr. Amelia Case. I'm going to open a clinic over there. Uh, can I tell you when I open? You know, wow. so I did. I met 3,500 people and then I opened. Wow. And yeah. <laughs> it wasn't all pretty either, but, um, I did open and I opened on time and I, I was, you know, in the black in three months, I already had, you know, a practice in a way. So, but what happened was what I had not anticipated was that people would come in with more than one problem. (laughs) I thought people would come in with like back pain or neck pain, you know, not like back pain and hemorrhoids, digestive problems, uh, (laughs) you know, breathing issues. Um, you know, food intolerance, sinus pain. And so those first, those first months, I thought I was going to have a nervous breakdown because I felt so unprepared, like how am I to manage these multiple problems? And probably about by six months in, I was trying to hire a massage therapist and I was trying to hire psychologists and I was trying to hire a physical therapist and I was trying to hire acupuncturists. Oh. And so because partly because I was 
I felt so, I think the word would probably be inadequate. I felt so unprepared to handle all of those things. And also just my, my inner, mm, my inner sort of integrity wouldn't allow me to just block out all those other problems and just yeah. like try to handle one little thing. Mm -hmm. So I ended up by mistake building a team. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I started learning about leadership was by, by chance. Okay. But probably the biggest thing that, that surprised me in practice was not that people came in with multiple problems, but by 1995, really, I started to realize that I, I couldn't believe that people were coming in with mental problems. And I don't know if you know this, but there was no um, CPT code for anxiety at that time. There was really. Yeah, it, the CPT board met in the in like the 80s and started talking about, you know, how do we code, you know, when people come in with this kind of thing and that kind of thing. There were just a couple of codes. Huh. But what's what shocked me is that, you know, women would come in, they'd be like perfectly dressed and they, you know, city women who are accomplished. And so sure, they had neck pain or they, you know, had a lumpectomy or they had constipation or they had a bunion. The, the primary thing I noticed after about five years in practice was that people were coming in and I thought that they seemed so together and they were describing that they felt that they were suffering from sleeplessness or insomnia or they felt a sense of foreboding in the pit of their stomach or they had chest pain that was unexplained or they were worrying constantly or they were perseverating over something. Hmm. And that surprised me because they were professionals, you know, they were bank managers, CEOs, presidents. My practice was right in the heart of the Gold Coast of Chicago. Mm. So I had people okay. very well-dressed and very professional. And they just seemed to be suffering with so much mental stress, psychological stress. Mm -hmm. And the reason I took note of that is because I was hiding the, the same kind of feelings. Mm. So I remember the first day I had 10 patients, I went home and I laid on my bed and I was crying and thinking, how am I ever going to handle this? And I was afraid yeah. to get up the next day and I felt too much responsibility and I, I felt a sense of dread. Mm. And that wasn't a new experience for me. I had felt that early in my life and my mom had said I was just a, a hypersensitive child. And then later she told me I was just too smart. And I noticed too much. And, you know, for one reason or another, I just kept, kept thinking, you know, this only happens to me. It doesn't happen to other people. Mm. So, Amelia, what were some of the things you did to try and deal with these issues you were facing? So, I tried different things to handle it in myself. And my primary and go-to was to go to religion and learn how to pray or find the right God or find the right spiritual exercises. And I looked for things that stressed me out in religions. And then I would complain about that and try to find a different <laughs> religion and then try to find a different religion because I thought something was sort of innately wrong with me. And somehow I could mm. be saved by, you know, some spiritual ordainment, let's say. And I, I had different coping mechanisms that were, I've always been a natural healthcare kind of person. I didn't want to take drugs. I, I didn't want to smoke any dope. I didn't want to 
drink. I just didn't want any exogenous way. In fact, I felt that made me more stressed out even imagining doing something Hmm. like taking a drug in any form. Yeah. And also I had some really crazy things happen to me. Like my mom um, just happened to marry men who were uh, loosely categorizing them sociopaths. (laughs) Oh, no. That's pretty loose. Yeah. (laughs) You know, just, I mean, really bizarre people. And also I had, you know, I had trauma, suffered certain kinds of trauma from just family breakups. But Mm. also I left home to get away from one of those crazy men. And I went to the army when I was 17. Wow. And it was my first experience with any racial stress. I was the only white girl in our platoon and I got beaten up the first day that I was there. And then on the day of graduation from uh, basic training, I was raped. And so Mm -hmm. I I had a couple of traumatic events straight out of the gate. And then I got innervated, like, to even more hypersensitivity in a way from those events. It it escalated whatever I already had that was, you know, that was some sense of anxiety, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't talk about it. And I, I was a great student in school after I got out of the Army. I went to university. I ended up graduating from the University of Denver. I loved it there. I had a great experience, but I felt all the time that I was hiding something. And yeah. so it was easy for me to do a double major and three minors and two jobs and just keep working. Wow. And maybe trying to work faster than the anxiety could catch up with me. Wow. Okay. So when I was in practice and I saw people like me, I said, oh my God, you know, I haven't been that much different. And so I, <laughs> I was spending some time studying less about the spiritual aspect and more about the mental or psychological aspect. Mm-hmm. I ended up studying something that is now called the Martini method. And I got certified in that method in 1997. And so I thought, well, I'll make this a hobby business. I want to try this method. It helped me. So I'll try to do it on somebody else and see if it helps anybody else, mm-hmm. which it did. And so I, you know, got a couple of clients. I didn't tell any of the people at the clinic. I just did this kind of quietly. And then I did it and I, it just sort of grew. And the rest is sort of history. What has been happening uh, in a parallel universe with that has been my hobby business. And the hobby business has been this business to take care of people with high functioning anxiety. And so over these years, it started in 97. I have created a method that it helps people who are, who are struggling with high functioning anxiety. And, and by that, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily people who have generalized anxiety disorder who can't, who are paralyzed and can't get out of their homes. Mm-hmm. But people who are, you know, the people I've been serving and the people just like me who are really high functioning, they're smart, they have high intellectual and high emotional quotients and they get stuff done and they show up, but they're often hiding something and you haven't known how to deal with it. And, and the truth is, it's just an incredible drain. It's a, a drain on a person's energy and creative bandwidth. Mm-hmm. And, and I believe if it's not taken care of, it also leads to that generalized anxiety disorder, which then, then it does become a pathological condition. So a lot of people, I guess, are, are dealing with different aspects of anxiety, but they don't necessarily know that other people like yourself or, or others around them are experiencing the same thing. And yet, 
I hear that we are a highly medicated society related to mental health. So I guess there's, there's a lot more propensity for the, the people around us to actually be experiencing something like that. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of things that really bother me about the, the aspect of being medicated, and that is that there's no medication that works for anxiety. You know, mm. there's, uh, there are medications that are used for seizure disorders that are used off-label to dull and dim the nervous system so that it sort of turns down the volume of the anxiety experience, yeah. but it doesn't stop it. And in fact, it never will. In mm. fact, a few years ago, the CEO for GlaxoSmithKline said, you know, it's not even worth our putting money in this because it's, it's not doing what we thought it would do. So mm. in, in fact, in the pharmaceutical industry, there's a lot of frustration that none of the medications work. And it's funny, they're not really facing the real neuroscience right. types of anxiety and that it will never work because apart from the fact that sometimes the terminology has not been properly used, what people often think of of anxiety is not anxiety at all. It's a threat detection and a threat response behavior that they observe. And when they observe it and not knowing what it is, the observation of it gives them pause. And then that sort of analysis of it makes them feel bizarre. And then that gets interpreted in a way that ends up being diagnosed as anxiety. Amelia, I understand you've come up with a unique way to better understand our brain functions, especially around anxiety. It comes down into, I like to break it into what I call the seven beasts. So when I break it down into the beasts, it seems to make it more clear for people to understand their own mammalian brain. So the beasts, obviously there are no beasts living in our heads, but if I break it down into seven mascots for those functions of the brain, I say it's the dog, the monkey, the lion, the wolf, the eagle, the bunny, and the wounded cat. So those are seven of them. And so the dog, the mascot, the dog represents a sense of hunger for food or a, an alarm that there is not enough fuel. Oh, okay. So that's an important one. And, and uh, I'll pick one of these if you want to go into more depth, but let me go through them first. So sure. the monkey represents a sense of the need to procreate. And so it's a sense of not mating or a sense of not reproducing that is the trigger for survival. Okay. The third one, which is the lion, is a sense, has a sense of displacement. In other words, the, the territoriality is what causes the ability to survive, is having territory. And without territory, there's no rest. So the lion represents the trigger that when there's not a territory or where there's threatened territory or feeling of displacement, that survival is on the line. Then comes the wolf. So the wolf has a sense of isolation if there's no pack and protection. Ah, uh, okay. So the survival trigger would, would go off if there was a sense of no pack, no protection. Mm. And then the eagle represents mm. a, a sense of scarcity. So the eagle would feel their survival reflex if there's a sense of scarcity of resources. And then the bunny 
represents a sense of defenselessness. So the, mm. that trigger, the bunny trigger, would go off for survival if there was a, a loss or a lack of size and authority. And then the wounded cat represents a sense of illness or injury, which, which translates into a loss of strength and mm. energy. And what mo many people don't realize is those, those are black and white triggers. Let's say, for example, I was working with a lawyer who's a partner in a law firm, and there was someone who was in the law firm has a covert narcissist type of behavior. And so that person was going behind her back, the, my client's back, and diminishing her reputation with other partners. So mm -hmm. my client thought this is, you know, it's simple triangulation, working with a covert narcissist, but couldn't understand why she was sick and why the tension was building up. Well, she was trying to handle it with her human brain without realizing that her mammalian brain was on high alert because her pack and her protection was at risk. Interesting. So her anxiety experience, let's say, was coming from this part of her brain that wasn't anxious. It was just a survival reflex. When we don't have pack and protection, when we do one thing, we panic and we escape. So she couldn't figure out why she's a big powerful lawyer. She couldn't get out of bed in the morning and she was wow. you know, developing this horrible constant panic feeling or panic disorder. Mm -hmm. When she could understand the mammalian part of her brain, then she could be more compassionate, number one, and realize it didn't mean she was having a mental health disorder. But when then she could have the solution, the so solution is as black and white as the trigger. And that is for a perceived loss of pack and protection is to rekindle relationships, rekindle or rejoin the pack, mm -hmm. or find a new pack, but to find protection. And so the strategies, instead of being built around treating the feelings of anxiety she had, we were able to take her, her energy and her attention to go and actually do the thing that soothed the beast inside of her, which was make sure that she went around and she rekindled those relationships and rejoined the group or re-solidified those relationships so that she felt she had the pack and protection. Wow. And what ended up happening was that. And so the feelings went away and the problem, people can only solve problems if they can use their human brain and she couldn't use her human brain because she was stuck in her mammalian brain. Wow. That is so yeah. fascinating, Amelia. I, it, to me though, I, what I love about that is you're dealing with the source you're not trying to cover it up with a Band-Aid or outside activity, you know, like a, like a drug or binge watching something, you know, whatever it is to dull the pain. You're actually getting to the source of that, resolving it so that they can function even better. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, Amelia, question. I have a question. We had a guest on early on the podcast, Michelle Villalobos, and Michelle shared really openly about her journey and a lot of this aligns with what she shared, that she had all this success, highly educated, and the world saw her as successful, but inside she was being eaten alive. And we, she shared a lot about her journey, and the question I asked her was, what do you see as the biggest obstacle to people really working through this? And what she said is similar to what you're talking about. She said, I, she said, I really believe you have to be willing to feel the pain and to go to that place versus turning it off 
And she said, I spent my whole life turning it off and finding ways to turn it off or silence it or at least turn it down. And it wasn't until I let it really take over in a way that I could then feel it and then move through it. And I'm hearing some similarities here in what you're sharing. Yes. Let's say this. We are the only mammals we know of who are autonoetic, meaning we are aware that we're aware. And so we have to be aware of all the experiences that happen <laughs> to our bodies, through our minds. And then the next part of that is just feeling the pain is not enough and gutting it out is not enough. Mm. Being able to say and define what is triggering a particular pain and differentiate that from as a mammalian pain versus a higher brain pain is really critical to being a human being. Mm. So let's say, for example, if somebody who has a haunting is very different from someone who has a trigger, a trigger might be, okay, here's this woman, you know, going behind the lawyer's back and creating trouble with the partners at the firm. The reflex, if you would, the survival reflex and reaction makes sense is she was going to lose her pack and her protection. You know, they have a fiduciary responsibility to keep her in the firm, but they could figure out a way to get her out. So her, her pack and her protection was at risk. And so she had exactly, in fact, the perfect response is if you're a lone wolf and you're, you're in danger, you run away and you escape and you panic. And that's what gives you the energy to get to where you're supposed to go to be far away, escape and alone and safe in some spot away from the pack you've been rejected from. From the mammalian standpoint, that's a perfect solution. But be able to understand that pain versus someone who says, for example, I am really haunted by the, by the idea of not being popular. That's a very different area in the brain. So that comes from somebody who's put on a pedestal. Popularity is all good, no bad. That's sort of bipolar perception problem is someone says, oh, popularity is fantastic and to be unpopular is horrible. And so the difference between the height of that pedestal and the depth of that pit creates stress. That's a very different thing going on in the brain than somebody who has a reaction to losing a pack and needing protection. Those are two very different things. Yeah. So there, if you want to think about it in sort of a hierarchical way, you can think the base brain of being the mammalian brain, it detects threat and it gets triggered by a threat. And then it has a threat defense behavior. Okay. And that behavior is a reaction to try to cause the, the beast to survive, mm -hmm. which is the outcome that the beast wants is to be alive. And that's going on within us every day, all the time. That threat detection is happening. And then the very perfect behavior aligns with the threat. And that perfect okay. behavior, instead of saying it's perfect, we run to the psychologist saying, you know, it hurts and I want to get rid of it instead of being educated. You know, no one out of the blue. I mean, if I show you a picture of a snarling wolf and said, you know, is the wolf thinking? You'd be like, well, no, it's a wolf. If I said, did the wolf just out of clear blue sky decide to start growling? Hmm. You know, it was just walking along on a sunny day in the woods and it just like showed its teeth and lifted its front lips and started snarling. No chance. 
Right. It happens because something happened. So when you're looking at this from a diagnosis perspective, somebody comes to you and says, hey, I'm, I'm facing this issue. Is it now you're looking at that and you're saying, okay, well, based on what they have, it's this beast that's coming into play. Or do you have a series of questions that you go into to figure that out? Both. But okay. I'll say this is, I am not a psychologist. I, mm -hmm. I am a scientist and I know a lot mm -hmm. about the nervous system and that's kind of the, the foundation of all chiropractic work in chiropractic right. medicine. So I don't call this so much treatment as I do education. And I believe very much in the frontal lobe that we humans have and that every person is smart and every person has an in, innate interest in understanding their own behavior and conduct. And so if people are educated, the, the most powerful thing anybody can do is self-assess. So I can teach someone these mascots for the triggers, and then the ultimate and best expression of their understanding is that they can self-identify. And then, honestly, it's not so difficult for anybody to take care of because as black and white as the beast reactions are, so are the solutions. Mm. And so maybe in the last month or so, a couple of meetings that we've had were focused on, I don't know where you come up thinking you've got a choice in this. If the reaction is triggered, you have to do what calms the beast. It's, yeah. it's not like you have a choice. It's not like, oh, when I have time, I'll, I'll find a retreat. It's required, and it's a required way to get the beast back to its normal state. So the bunny, for example, that retreats for a while, retreats mm -hmm. under the bush. When it feels safe, it comes out, it's just fine. But it has to go through that step of retreat. Okay. So in, the, in that case where you have somebody that uh, maybe they're not taking their advice, she feels smaller because of that, does she reassert herself in order to not retreat? Is that a valid response or does she need to take some time, circle the wagon, so to speak, and then come back to it? She has to retreat. It's okay. a requirement. It's black and white. It's, it's very arithmetic. It's like, you get a stress and you get a reactive pattern. You have to address that perfect behavior with hmm. the perfect response. But they're very simple. Like if the blood sugar is low, perfect response is you eat. So I can't tell <laughs> how many leaders I've worked with who just, they have bad eating habits and they work themselves into a tizzy thinking they have anxiety. And the problem is their blood sugar is floating around 70 milligrams per deciliter and their mammalian brain is going berserk. You they have to eat. They, they have to get the blood sugar to 92 milligrams per deciliter. Yeah. You follow? If there is a lack of a sense of territory or if it feels like there's no place to rest, that beastly brain will go crazy. So just finding a way to define the territory is so key. We've seen with this pandemic, for example, I, I, four of those things really got stimulated. So let's mm. say people being displaced and not feeling like they had territory. Oh, yeah go to their supermarket or go, you know, drive or go to their offices. So that right. sense of displacement couldn't like be in a physical space that was comfortable. Displacement has to do with time and space. So they, you know, how to spend their time and where to spend it. So that was displacement or feeling um, isolated, you know, separated from pack or protected by their pack. Mm -hmm. That's another one. Or, you know, something that's the great unknown, like a virus, as microscopic as it is, it seemed big, you know, the whole world stopped because of it. So that is yeah. feeling small and 
you know, with no authority whatsoever. And then the idea of feeling lack of resources. I mean, imagine people were tugging on toilet paper against each other. So eagles are not collaborative beings. So people threatening, intimidating each other and not being collaborative was completely predictable. All of those behaviors completely predictable. And so the sense of anxiety, four of the seven triggers going off like mad over the last, you know, what is it now, three months, Right. really can tell you a lot about how people are suffering and maybe don't understand the very black and white steps they could take to soothe those beasts, to tame the beasts. The beasts are not going anywhere. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. The Impact Leadership Podcast is brought to you by Cartevera. Cartevera is a leadership development ecosystem with training, coaching, resources, events, and a community to help you grow. At Cartevera, we believe that you can't grow a business bigger than you, that your company is limited by your growth. We blend personal growth with leadership, team, and business growth to give you a single place to grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. You can find out more at cartevera.com. Welcome back. I love that phrase, tame the beast. When you're educating them, what's the objective of the educating? Because what I'm hearing you say is, the, the, let's stick with the bunny story, because we've been going with the bunny story. The bunny wants to retreat when it feels threatened. So at first you said they want to be able to self-assess. And as they self-assess, they realize it's happening. Is there something, is there a goal at some point in the education they're going to first be aware it's happening. Is there a point where they hope to get to that it's not even happening or are they shortening it? Like what's the objective of the education? It's to be a really good zookeeper. <laughs> Let's say, for example, like I said, this woman who found out that she goes to her team and she delivers messages to her team and they don't do what she says. Okay, when they don't do what she says, her four regional managers own the company, they're running the companies, you know, she avoids them and freezes. She doesn't actually retreat. Now, before we started working together, she's now learning to retreat, but she would just get small and then like try to push herself out of her smallness, which never works because it's like you keep saying to the bunny, you aren't there, you aren't there, you aren't there. And the bunny keeps, you know, being smaller, feeling smaller and smaller. And I'm saying feeling as if the bunny is like self-aware, but no, it's just a black and white reaction. The bunny is small and the bunny's going to be small until it gets retreat, period. There's no argument. So what is she doing? This is why, you know, so interesting for when you're doing coaching work is to be really clear on what is creating reactions versus what is creating a need for action. Those are different things. What's mm. a trigger versus a threat. So for her, one of the solutions is, what I identified with her is that she is not adept at stating her expectations. Now, because her haunting is that she's not popular, she tries to be nice to her regional managers. So she doesn't want to say, this is my expectation, period, by this time. The haunting is that if she's nice, she'll be popular. And if she's not nice, she won't be popular. And so there's a big difference between that pedestal and a pit that's creating tension. It makes her take a particular stance with them, even though she's the CEO of the company. She's actually functioning as an operations COO as well. She doesn't 
tell them the, her expectations. And so they don't have expectations. They all got beasts going on in their heads. So whatever beast is, you know, acting upon them at that moment, they're reacting, they're not listening to her. And so when she feels small, then she goes into the bunny mode. This has already happened since the time we've been working together is she wanted to work on this, on that, on this and that. My job is to say, no, you're going to do one thing, one thing, only one thing, because nothing will work if these beasts are bananas. So the one thing you're going to do is you're going to state your expectations. You're going to find out what they are, first of all, and then you're going to state them and you're going to have a way to state them that is true to your integrity. If you don't have to be a bitch, you know, to state your expectations, you, you have to learn how to state your expectations in a way that you can live with yourself and you can live with the way you manifest your leadership in the world. But what happens when you see that they understand your expectations, you'll feel big again. You're funny. <laughs> and when your bunny feels like it's fine, you won't feel the need to retreat. Does that answer your question? It does. Let me make sure I'm going to play back for you. What I heard from you, the summary of that is, so with this person, when, she, when she's the bunny, when she feels small, she retreats. And what I heard you say is the retreat is inevitable. Yes. So the work is designed to have her engage differently, communicate differently, whatever that is, so that she doesn't go to the small place. Because small place retreat is inevitable. So the work is keeping her out of the small place. Yes, keeping her bunny feel like it has its own size and authority. I got it. So that, that's really helpful. That, that part really helped me bring it together because we're not, the Jew taming is not minimizing the reaction. It's focusing on the trigger. Yeah. Because the reaction is retreat, but the trigger is feeling small. Yes, yes. Yes, well okay. said. I work with a lot of leaders. They have three things in common. You know, they are curious. Mm -hmm. They love to solve problems. Mm -hmm. They have willpower. Man, do they have perseverance, you know, and they have like intuitiveness and they're deliberate. And, you know, that all adds up to willpower. So she has run this company for 15 years. Wow. It's grown and grown and grown. I can't even imagine how big it's going to be when she actually has some control of, you know, when she's got the zoo with everyone in there. <laughs> the zoo in her head and the zoo outside her head, right? Yeah. And... <laughs> But I think this is so crazy is that she has used her willpower to be so mean to that bunny to like, shut up, mm. shut up, shut up, you know, and it's not the way we would even treat our pets. You know, it's like, <laughs> I think part of the benefit of putting these labels as mascots to this part of the brain allows many people to have more compassion mm. that, you know, they, they, the dog has to be fed. That is really the truth. Those behaviors have to be met with the, I call them the re-steps. The solutions are as perfect as the behaviors are, but leaders so often use their willpower to overpower these beastly triggers. And by doing that, they actually make themselves worse. The big takeaway for me is, well, two things. I see exactly the thing you're talking about, especially in leadership. They are so skilled at pushing through things and pushing down things, and they, they'll say, I'm managing that, because they're, to me, using the metaphor, of, let's say it's the, the lion or the wolf, they're, they're, I got my hands over there going, I got you. <laughs> and, and, but I'm spending all my effort, and that's what's really creating the stress, yeah. is they're trying to control this beast rather than address what I'm hearing you say, 
the reaction and, and taking th doing things differently to reduce or eliminate trigger state. This is that's the part I love to understand. The reaction is going to be what it's going to be. We have to address the trigger. Yeah, and the and you know what the reaction and the solutions are perfect and they're not difficult. They are mm -hmm. not difficult at all. But if they're ignored, the beasts get mad. And yeah. you know, I'm saying metaphorically. Once I teach leaders this, you know, what sometimes what they say is like, listen, Amelia. So if I, this is a classic leader, like, okay, so if I get my blood sugar stabilized every two and a half hours, my blood sugar stays at 90. If I make sure I'm having sex, I got a real plan for how I'm going to, you know, make that happen. I'm, I, I'm talking to my partner. I'm talking to my wife. It's got to happen all the time. We're, we're going to get this done. And if I know exactly what my territory is, and I'm really clear, and in the morning I state that, and I know that, you know, they're already planning how they're going to keep that zoo. And you know what? They do it. And that is what it takes. I mean, it is not complicated at all. Just admitting that those things are going on inside. Wow. Once that's solved, then you go to the next level up. And the next level up is where, no, this is where therapy and real coaching really get fun is because when people start to say there are, only, there are really only seven hauntings, as a matter of fact, back to the number seven, but it happens that the hauntings are like, say for one, spiritual, what's good or what goes on the pedestal is saying, well, if there's a God and there's meaning and I do these things, I get bliss, you know, and if there's no God, there's no meaning and, you know, this is no meaning and that's horrible, you know, very black and white. Or if I'm rich, that fixes everything. Rich is good, poor is bad. So the haunting is, you know, God of the things that threaten me to be poor, the threaten th things that threaten me to believe in, you know, some greater power or threaten my bliss or say with family, it's saying like, oh, if I have a family, they identify me and I'll have a headstone and I'll be memorialized in legacy. <laughs> There'd be a legacy and I'm part of something and I, I'm recognized in this, this group. And, and if I'm not, then that's bad. And or as my wife would say, if everybody's happy, then we're good. Yeah. People assign different, but I feel like if I gave you a like kind of a quick sketch, you can see where I'm going with this is then yeah. if I'm popular and I'm famous, that's good. And if I'm not, I'm ostracized, that's bad. And so this is life I, in black and white. The more polarized, the more unpleasant right. life experience. So, or at least knowing where you're trying to fill your voids. So it's, it's almost but like I, a, um, looking at the hierarchy of needs. And so yeah. if you look at Maslow's hierarchy, you know, we have to take care of our, our foundation before we can move up a level and so forth and get to that point of self-actualization. Yeah. In fact, if you use Maslow's hierarchy and you replace it with verbs instead okay. of items that get fulfilled, Maslow mm -hmm. talked in terms of items that get fulfilled. Like verbs. safety and... Right, yep. right. So that makes perfect sense. But it, I, like, I like the more practical term of looking at it from the point of view of verbs. So if you listen carefully to somebody and you hear someone saying, I've got to, I must to, I have mm. to, I need to. You know, That's the pit and the pedestal. Yeah, they are really in the pit. In fact, I, I've always used that since I started my, since I first learned it and started my business to interview. So I don't hire, have to, got to, need to. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it's, I have to, got to, need to do something amazing? No, it never comes out like that. <laughs> it won't come out like that. Okay. So I also don't hire should to. So somebody 
If someone's yeah. saying should to, it means they're they're answering to a higher authority, whether it's the church or the right. you know, the parents or the you know government or school or education, or whatever. Shooting on themselves. Yeah, I don't like shoulders. So I don't hire should. I don't hire got to, need to, have to, must to. But I can tell how long I'm going to have a client and how hard it, the work's going to be based on the language. If someone is huh. really in a got to, need to, must to, have to place, that person's probably going to be working pretty hard for a month. And I'll be working hard. <laughs> but if someone comes in and if the language is a little more balanced and the person's saying, you know, I want to, I've been thinking about, I wish I could, I'd love to, you know, mm -hmm. it's totally different. The language tells it all. I mean, the language yeah. keys are just incredible. So I'd, I'd love to switch the, the conversation a little bit here and, and really make this a tool that leaders and listeners can, can use as they're working with their people as well. So they have the internal side and the internal perspective of, okay, I have to be a zookeeper. And then from there, I need to understand the differences between the pit and the pedestal. And that's for me, but I can also help my people in understanding that themselves. And so they're looking for some of the language patterns that you were talking about as being able to say, you know what, Bob, Mary, this is an issue that maybe you want to explore this, you know, and so you, you kind of give them some homework so that they can kind of deal with their stuff, but yet they're going to be bringing it to work. So how do we effectively address that or maybe you can talk about some resources that you may have for leaders to, to deal with that. Yeah. This is the most important thing, of course, is how does this translate into real life? I do believe that when people understand that there's this beastly brain inside within the skull, when we're alive and awake, so is it. Being able to learn about the beast and then be able to identify what are risks to triggering. So say, for example, if someone says, I just don't have time for breakfast, you're taking on a risk there. You want to have brain fog. You want that dog to be panting and miserable and all of the things that go along with that shaking, trembling. But the mental part of that, okay, that's a very common one. So to learn that like everyday sort of things that we think are okay, this is an educational requirement if you have a brain. That's not enough to say stress causes fight or flight, but to be able to learn what really are the things that happen to the human being because of the mammalian brain. That takes some learning of going from neuroscience to regular language. But I have some tools that I share, you know, quizzes to be able to take a look at yourself and understand what triggers and learning about the beast and just being aware of them and a period of about a month is what I find a month of self-observation and sort of journaling gets people pretty far along the way of at least knowing they're not crazy and knowing they have the beasts within. And if I go by my experience for people to feel like they really master this and the beasts aren't in control of them anymore, it takes about six months of practice. And but the good news is it totally breaks the myth that they are suffering from anxiety. And these people who've had anxiety for, quote, had anxiety, high-functioning anxiety is what I'm talking about, have had it for 10 and 15 and 20 years, go through this work, and it's a done deal. It's over. Wow. It's over. You know, there's one scientist, by the way, who writes a lot about this, and he's right on. His name is Joseph Ledoux at New York University. And in fact, he wrote a book called Anxious. He's totally right on because he says, 
so much of what's called anxiety is not. It's a survival reflex. When I read his book, I was like, oh my God, that's right. You know, and he's, he's the serious neuroscientist. It's really exciting and amazing to think about how intelligent human beings are and what's possible. And all those possibilities turn right to crap when the creative brain can't be front and center. I mean, that's what makes us different. So when we turn into our beast, it's like the lowest possible expression of our human nature. So it's really exciting to think, you know, we're so intelligent. We have the ability to educate ourselves, to understand to, to be self-aware, and as we understand these beasts and learn how to deal with them, that's when we really can use our creative brains, and really that's most what we'd love to have happening in the world today, is people in their best expression and being super creative, you know, really solving problems, not just we're trying to run away from their beasts. <laughs> right. Amelia, one yeah. question I have is, You've talked a lot about self-assessment, self-awareness, self-education. Is there any role here for others in helping me in this journey? In other words, because a lot of times, like for example, with blind spots, I need help with outsiders to help me see them. Is there a role that other people, perhaps on the team or inner circle, can help with someone in the work they're doing on this journey? Yeah, I would call this a blind spot, as a matter of fact. So for sure, talking about it, the truth is when people are in their beastly brain, they're not speaking English. There's always a physical component. You know, if you watch beasts, they hide, they get tense, they shake, they puff up. We are so often told not to do those things or to repress those things. So we're not able always even to see our body trying to manifest the proof of what's going on in the beastly brain. Having somebody else where we can be really open up and authentic, even if it looks kind of ugly, sometimes shows that other person that beastly behavior. Yeah. But there have to be other people to see that and, and help make the correction or see the craziness. And so, yeah, it takes other people. I mean, listen, it takes people to bring life to life. It takes people. And that you can have the beast tame, but stuff's going to come up. And people are going to behave like beasts because it is part of the brain and it's in there. How do people find out more about your work in this area? Where would they go for that? You know, I have a site that's called Done With Anxiety. And okay. it's people who struggle with high functioning anxiety, but it's a site that's an educational site. And I have a blog on there and I have some links to my programs and materials. There are some free tools to be able to do a quiz and to learn about okay. the beasts on that site. Depending upon the level of depth that someone wants to go into, mm -hmm. I can provide that. But just at least first learning about the beast and what the triggers are. They can start there on done with anxiety. And then if they want more or deeper connection, they can, they can talk to you about actually working with you directly. Yeah. Right? Okay. Sure. Yes. It's, um, it's called done with anxiety. Done with anxiety. Okay. What would be your, your top movie when you're thinking about leadership? One of my favorite movies that I, I believe is uh, underutilized as a management tool is Master and Commander. Oh, fantastic movie. I love yeah. that movie. I mean, there's so much wonderful metaphors in there for yes. leadership. I mean, it's fun to watch, but more than anything, when I watch it through leadership lenses, every single time I see it, I learn something new. And I've seen it probably, 
I would guess five times. Yes, that is a fantastic movie. Yeah. Somebody who's alive that you would really like to meet and what question would you ask them? There's so many people that I would love to meet right now. <laughs> I love Carol Dweck and I, I would love to have a conversation with her about words. Her gift to the world of a mindset mm-hmm. really has more to do with the word yet mm-hmm. than anything. And I mean, I, I don't mean I, this isn't justifying her many gifts that she's given the world with sure. mindset work. But I so appreciate what she has offered people just with one little word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was great talking with you again. And uh, we'll, we'll talk with you soon. Thanks so much. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Bye. If you like this podcast, you'll love the Cartavera Tribe. The Cartavera Tribe is a community of growth-committed leaders who want to connect, engage, and grow themselves, their people, and their businesses. Cartavera is a leadership development ecosystem with training, coaching, assessments, and events to challenge you and help you grow. And the Cartavera Tribe is a membership like none other. You'll get live access to Craig and Jeff where you can ask questions, as well as masterminds where you can get answers from other leaders who've already solved your greatest challenges. You'll have access to additional interviews and a variety of courses, tools, and resources to help you achieve your biggest goals. We have monthly game days where we have challenges and competitive games to help you grow your leadership capabilities. And you'll get a personal growth Sherpa who will guide you to help you reach your growth goals. To find out more, go to cartavera.com. That's C-A-R-D-I-V-E-R-A.com. See you on the inside. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.